Uh, as you're as you're turning there. Um, so let's see. We, we got this is kind of a busy time of year for us. Uh, whenever um, whenever Mars Hill Camp comes around, there's it always seems like there's about five or six things going on at once. Uh, but this past week, UK uh, started class, and so UCF has has begun. We have. Uh, not a huge contingent of people involved in UCF, but we do have a contingent. And uh, so if you are involved this semester with the ministry on campus, um, could you raise your hand? Jackson. I know that uh, Thomas stepped out, but he's he's very involved. Anybody else been down there this past week or going to be down there? Isaac and Emma, sort of. Doing the sideways head shake. Um, so, so keep UCF in your prayers. Even though we're not, um, we don't have a huge. You know, it's not the really the, the center of what we're doing at, at the current in the current season. Uh, we do have those who are kind of on the front lines down there uh, doing ministry. I know also uh, Ashley Withers is um, spending time on campus trying to find uh, some some ladies to reach out to and disciple. So uh, UCF starting up, we've got Mars Hill Camp this week. That begins, well, for the juniors and seniors, it begins tonight, today. Or it's been going on today. Uh, the juniors will go out tomorrow. And so I'll be out there most of the week. I think also Kate Flannery will be out there some, and um, some of the parents will be out there cooking and helping. So just keep both of those things in, in prayer. Those are, those are big efforts that we do as a, as a community. And uh, they, they really do bear a lot of fruit. They, they are sort of foundational things that we've given ourselves to, foundational ministries. So any prayer that you can send toward UCF and Mars Hill as it gets going um, will be more than, more than appreciated. All right. So we're not, we are not going to get out of John chapter 1 this week. Uh, we talked mostly about the prologue, the big picture, the big context that John sets for his gospel, the, the, the story that he tells. This, it has worldwide, all of eternity implications. What Jesus came to do uh, isn't just about the Jews. It's about the whole of creation. Okay? And so uh, in line with that creation theme, you know, John, he, he, he begins in the beginning. And then he takes us through one week in the life of Jesus. All right. So um, that kind of echoes from, from Genesis. So we're going to pick up in chapter 19. And tonight we're just going to go through this, this week, this first week in John. And it, it runs through the end of chapter 1. Actually, it runs through the, uh, the wedding, which begins chapter 2, uh, is day 7 of this week. All right, so we're going to go through each day of the week. And the main thing that I want to point out, last week we talked about how the, the point of John's gospel was to get us to encounter Jesus in a real way. These things are written so that you may know him, that you may know that Jesus is the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Okay, John was very selective 
and intentional in the signs that he chose to include in his gospel. And they are specifically chosen to help us to see and believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And that by believing, we would have life in his name. So, John never ceases to amaze me. Uh, and, and always when I've studied John, this, this section that we're talking about tonight has... I, I, I read the prologue, I'm like, wow, there's a lot there. And then I get into this first week, and I just... I get the sense that I'm like, there's, there's so much going on here. There's, there's so much weight on each sentence. And then I look at each word and I go, man, there's just a ton happening here. So we're going to go pretty slow through this first week and just look at how, how people are encountering Jesus. All right, these are the first encounters with Jesus that John records. All right, so day one is... Uh, Chapter 1, verse 19 through 28. And it begins, uh, it says, this is the testimony of John. So it begins with John's testimony, John's message as to who Jesus was. When the Jews sent priests and Levite from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. Okay, so John so we're going to look at these, these different days, but we're also going to look at the different characters here. Um, there are a number of different characters and then groups of people. So I want, to, I want us to pay attention to what happens each day, but also what is each person that John introduces? What is each person's, what's the nature of their encounter with Jesus and what's the result of it? All right, and, and I think you'll see there's some really deep stuff and really uh, amazing things here. Um, but the first thing that we see is John bearing witness. He's, he's trying to ward off, not ward off, but he's trying to um, answer these questions, kind of these, these impertinent questions that are being asked. Really, he's being interrogated by this delegation from the Pharisees. They say, who are you? Right? They are coming to him already you can sense sort of an accusing tone. Who are you? And he's very quick to say, um, I am not the Christ, right? And this tips us off to the fact that there was actually an expectation uh, that, that the Christ was going to come, that the Messiah was going to emerge as a man and that he was going to deliver Israel. It was going to be God returning to his people. This was going to be the fulfillment of the prophecies. So the idea of the Messiah, of the Christ, was, was not a new idea at this point in time. Right? Lots of people were looking for the Christ. Okay? And so the Pharisees hear about this guy, John, doing, he's baptizing out in the wilderness, and he's, he's dressed weird, and he, he looks and sounds a lot like an Old Testament prophet. And so they sent, are you, are you this guy? Are you, are you the Messiah? And he says, in no uncertain terms, absolutely not. <laughs> I am not the Christ. Okay, so he wants to make it very clear that he is not the Christ. He knows exactly who he is and knows exactly who he is not. All right? and, and the thing that he wants to drive home to these people asking him is that he is not the Christ. 
And they keep asking him. They, they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? Right? This was probably a good question because he, there was a lot about his life that resembled Elijah and Elisha. Right? If you go and read about them. But he said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? And this was probably a reference to um, God's word to Moses that he would raise up a prophet like him from among the brothers. So are you that prophet that God said he was going to raise up? Are you the prophet? And he says, no. And each time his answers get shorter. <laughs> right? They keep asking about who are you? Who are you? Who are you? What do you say about yourself? He says, I'm not the Christ. No, I'm not. And then he, the last question, he just says, no. Okay. So they say, okay. So then you tell us, what do you say about yourself? Okay. So he's becoming increasingly impatient at having to answer questions about himself. That's what it sounds like. And the Pharisees here, I think this is a big point. The Pharisees here are, are implicating themselves, or at least the, the Pharisees' delegates. I'm not sure if they were actually Pharisees. Maybe they were kind of like pages, you know, hey, go and check this thing out and come report back to us. The, the, whoever they are, these people implicate themselves by the way and the kinds of questions that they're asking of John. Okay, they have an interrogative, interrogational, I don't know what the word is there. They have a posture of interrogation. Who are you? We deserve answers. We demand answers. Okay? And they also come with a lot of preformed ideas and, and preconstructed categories. Okay? All right, here's this guy. Let's go and demand that he account for who he, who, who he is and... He must be either the Christ or Elijah or the prophet. Which category do you fit in? And he just says, no, I'm not any of that. I don't fit into your categories. And I don't like your questions. And we'll see that this is, this is very important. That We've got John bearing witness about Jesus. And we see the stark contrast between these people who are demanding answers of John and all the, the disciples that we encounter next. But the thing here is that John insists on minimizing his own identity, right? Listen, I'm only here, he says, and he quotes Isaiah 40, which would have been a very well-known messianic passage of Scripture, Right? You remember Isaiah 40? It's the big turning point in the book of Isaiah. Comfort, comfort. And then it says, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. This is God is getting to come down and visit his people. This is one of the great hopes of the Israelite nation, that God would come and vindicate them, liberate them from their oppressors. And so he says, I'm the voice Right? He says, I'm not the Christ. I'm not the one who's coming. I'm just the voice saying he's coming. So John keeps minimizing his own role, except in relation to the one who's coming after him. And, and this, is, this is John's entire posture. Right? This is, this is um, one of the things I love about John, is he lived as a big arrow to Jesus. That was his goal, to just point people to Jesus. It was an awesome 
He's an awesome guy. And, and Jesus said, among those born of women, it's nobody greater than John. Why is that? Because he, his whole life was lived as a, as a proclamation of who God was and a preparation for him coming into the world. This, is, this culminates, by the way, in chapter 3 when he says, he must increase and I must decrease. Right? That's really John's chief motive. And it's beautiful. But he says, I am that voice. Right? Remember, Jesus is the word. John's just the voice. But the word is coming. The voice is nameless and only serves the purpose of preparing the way for God himself to arise, arrive on the scene. He says, so I'm the voice. And then they say, then why are you baptizing? Apparently, baptism was not a unique thing that people would baptize. But baptizing was a, way, a means of initiating somebody into the community of God. And when it would have been probably for outsiders to come and, and, be, and make themselves uh, converts. And he says, so why, why are you baptizing? Jews don't need to be baptized. They already belong to the people of God. And John says, yes, but there's a deeper belonging. There's a deeper community that everyone comes uh, into. So he says, yeah, I, I do baptize with water. But there's somebody coming. And you don't know him yet. And listen, let me tell you, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandal. And that's one of the, that's one of the greatest proclamations of humility that you could say, right? I'm not even worthy to untie his sandal. That, to untie someone's sandal was like the lowest of the low things that you can do, right? I'm not even worthy. Think of the, 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 the least desirable thing that you could do for someone. And he says, I'm not even worthy to do that for Jesus. I'm not even worthy... To dust out, to to to, polish, to clean his shoes, to scrape the mud off of his boots. <clears throat> so that's day one: is John's encounter with this delegation from the Pharisees. Day two, it says the next day, verse twenty-nine, he saw Jesus coming toward him. And again, he says he's pointing to Jesus. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's a loaded phrase. Um, we don't have time to get into all of that. That's one of John's favorite uh, titles for Jesus, the Lamb of God. John the writer. And he says, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself didn't know him. You know, they were cousins, by the way. You remember that. But he says, so he, he knew him. Or had a knowledge of him, but he didn't know him. He didn't know Jesus. He knew his cousin. He didn't know Jesus. I didn't know him. But for this purpose, I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. John bore witness. I saw the spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain. This is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. There's a new creation happening. 
There's a new baptism. There's a new way. There's a new marker of those who belong to the people of God, and that's they've been baptized by the Holy Spirit, not merely with water. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. So John encounters these Pharisees on day one. Day two, John encounters Jesus himself. Both, both days, John is dead set on pointing beyond himself to Jesus. He sees Jesus and he goes, this is the one. Everybody, look at him. Okay, and this continues. Day three, the next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples. Right? One of them we find out is Andrew. The other one, we're not sure who it is. My guess is John. John never names himself. Uh, but it would make sense that John, the author was there because he knows about these events. Anyway, he looked at Jesus as he walked by and he said again, behold, in other words, look at him. Stop looking at me. Look, look over there. The Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this and they followed Jesus. John points his own disciples to Jesus. He, everyone, that, everyone that John encountered, he says, look to Jesus. I'm, I'm just here to point you to Jesus. And this is the best and the highest aim of any discipleship. Pointing people to Jesus. Helping them come into Jesus' presence and, and encountering him. For people to hear what we say, right? It says that they heard what John said and they followed Jesus. For people to hear what we say which we hope is entirely centered on pointing people to Jesus. And then to follow Jesus, that's like the highest goal that we could aim for. For, for people to hear what we say as we point to Jesus, and then when Jesus arrives on the scene, to go and follow him. That's what it's all about. John must have rejoiced that he was losing members. Yes, I'm losing disciples to Jesus. That's the point. I want to lose disciples to Jesus. So they were following John. They left to follow Jesus, presumably with John's hearty endorsement. Yes, by all means. All right. And so now that the story shifts away from John. So we see that John's whole his whole motive was to point to Jesus, all right? And now the, the, the story shifts to those whom he has pointed to Jesus who have arrived in the presence of Jesus. So the two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? They didn't really answer Jesus' question, but maybe they did in a certain way. To ask, where are you staying? He says, what are you seeking? And they say, where are you staying? This is, this is a very different attitude than those who were interrogating John. Do you hear the difference? Where are you staying? In other words, we don't have, we're not here to demand answers. We're not here for a quick fix. 
we don't even have, you know, a, a, a bum leg that we want you to heal. They say, where are you staying? What, there's so much in that question. They, they have not come to demand anything. They have come to be with Jesus, to remain with him. They have come for an extended stay with Jesus. And here's a great insight into, again, to true discipleship. To desire to know where Jesus stays and to be there. That's the essence of true discipleship. When you, when you have a no, I want to be where Jesus, where, where are you? Where can I find you? What's your address? When are you going to be there? Can I come? That is the heart of a disciple. Right? They didn't thrust their categories on him. They didn't demand the answers that were, you know, plaguing their souls. They said, where are you staying? And Jesus, that, that, I think Jesus just loved to hear that. And he says, come and you will see. Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day. That's it. So day three, John points these disciples to Jesus. They say, can we come stay with you? And he says, sure. And they stay with Jesus that day. It's awesome. And that, then that day three ends. Day four begins. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew. Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, something from the time that they asked Jesus where he was staying to the next day, something about their encounter with Jesus caused Andrew to become convinced, convinced enough to go tell his own brother that they found the Messiah. I wish I knew (laughs) <laughs> I wish I knew what they talked about at the 10th hour of that day. What their, what their dinner conversation was. Because somehow Andrew went away totally convinced that this guy was the Messiah. But they didn't come demanding answers. They came to stay. They came to hang. And left knowing that this was the Messiah. We have found the Messiah, which means Christ this, is a, this, this verse is huge. He brought him to Jesus. So he says, hey, I found the Messiah. And then he doesn't keep talking his ear off. He brings him to Jesus. Did you realize that Andrew led Jesus to the Lord? I mean, led, led Peter? <laughs> Something. Something along those lines. Andrew led Peter, to the Lord. Pretty cool fact. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. It's just two two different languages, a play on the word rock. In English, it would be, you will be called Rocky. 
So, a couple things happen here on this, on this fourth day. And they center around Andrew going to find Peter, bringing Peter to Jesus. We don't hear anything from Peter. All we hear is Jesus renaming Simon Peter. And this, you should know, is a, this is an Old Testament thing. A, an encounter with God and a changing of a name. Right? It happened to Abram. Abraham happened to Jacob right here. It's happening with another one of the fathers of the church. He says, you've encountered me and I've, I've named you something different than you were before. And now you belong to me. You've been, you've been re renewed, recreated. So in Peter's encounter with Jesus, his identity is changed. A change of name is a change of identity in, in biblical terms. So we've got Andrew and the other disciple that's unnamed hanging out with Jesus and becoming convinced that he's the Messiah. Out of that saying, we got to go get Peter and bring him in on this. Peter encounters Jesus and his, or Simon encounters Jesus and his whole identity is changed from Simon to Peter. The next day, this is day five, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip. Now, this is, each one is a little different. Each one of these encounters is a little different. He found Philip, right? So he wasn't sought by Philip. Jesus went and he found Philip and then called him and said, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathaniel. So whatever happened, again, we don't have it. <laughs> we don't see it here. But whatever happened between the time that Jesus found Philip and said, follow me, to whatever happened there caused Philip to, to go find Nathaniel and said, whoa, we have found him whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. So that's Philip. Philip encounters Jesus in a way that, again, causes him to believe but also to go and tell, become convinced to the point of, I need to tell my close friend Nathaniel. And there's this pattern of an encounter with Jesus, not just staying static, but like the encounter with Jesus, we don't see a lot about the process of coming to belief. We see the results of it. Well, they believed and then they went and told everyone. Acting on the belief, they immediately are driven to action out of this encounter. Whoa, I see you. I know who you are. I got to tell other people. The whole priority and, and, and direction and thrust of their lives change as a result of their belief. It wasn't just like they went back into their daily lives and now, now they're believers. It was like they, they dropped everything and started to do everything out of this, out of this encounter with Jesus. And then we come to Nathaniel, and Nathaniel's my favorite one here. I love this encounter. The perspective shifts. It's, if you read it a lot, you'll see that each time you get a little glimpse of kind of like Jesus' point of view, right? You see the disciples' point of view and then Jesus' point of view. 
In this one, we get the, the biggest dose of Jesus' point of view towards Nathaniel. But listen carefully. You have to read John slow, and you've got to read it just word by word. Philip found Nathaniel and said to him, We have found him whom Moses and the law and the prophets all wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathaniel said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? That's not how you would expect somebody to begin a relationship with Jesus. Nicholasville? What? You've got to be kidding me. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, he doesn't try to convince him. Doesn't say, oh, you cynical old grump. He says, come and see. You just got to come and see. Right? And this is really the, the big theme of this whole chapter and really this whole teaching is, is come and see. Come and see. Now, this is, this is where I think there's, there's something big here. All right. And it's, it's deep and it, 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 it grabs my heart. Philip said to him, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming. Jesus saw Nathanael coming. So Philip says, you come and see. Nathanael comes to see. Jesus sees him coming. And he says of him, behold, an Israelite indeed. This is, this is the... Re- now, this is the guy who was, he didn't come, I mean, he was not predisposed to, on the, on the outside, you know, this was not the, this is not what you would expect. When Jesus sees Nathaniel, the guy who just insulted his hometown, he goes, whoa, that's an Israelite. Jesus saw something different than we saw as readers Jesus saw something different in Nathaniel than we saw in our first encounter with Nathaniel. We, thought, we saw this guy, oh, this is going to take a while. This guy is going to be a piece of work. Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. So Nathaniel's frankness was actually probably a, a benefit. Oh, this guy wears his heart on his sleeve. But it goes deeper than that. In whom there is no deceit. In Israelite indeed. Israel was the change name of who? Jacob. Jacob, which means deceiver, supplanter. He says, this guy is the real deal. The story of Israel was going from the story of a deceiver, a heel grabber, to a prince. And a transformation that totally broke a man who thought that he had had deceived his way into his inheritance. And God says, no. Yeah, you, there were lots of things that you did to try and cheat the system. It was me all along. And it's going to be me from here on out. And and Israel is the one who surrenders himself to God. An Israelite indeed. 
in whom there is no Jacob, you could say. There's no heel grabber in this guy. He knows. And so Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? How do you know me? So when Jesus said that, Nathanael, it hit him in his heart. It was who Nathanael knew himself to be. Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. I don't know what was going on under the fig tree. I would imagine that Nathaniel was longing for God to come and deliver Israel. And that in the privacy of his heart, where nobody else saw, he longed for the kingdom. And that's what Jesus saw. And yeah, he had this rough, maybe kind of an offensive exterior. But Jesus saw him. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. He was looking for the son of God. He wanted the king to be there. And because Jesus looked into his soul and said, I see what you want. I saw you pouring your heart out to me under the fig tree. I saw you in the privacy of your own hopes and longings. And I know that you are a real Israelite. Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. So that, that, was, that was enough for Nathaniel. He goes, whoa. He knows me. He, 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 was, he was totally transformed by being known by Jesus. Jesus just had to say one thing, and he was fully known. And he says, oh my goodness, you are the one. And Jesus says, well, I can do better than that. I saw you under the, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? You will see greater things than these. But that's all Nathaniel needed, right? Something, I mean, this is Jesus in his, in his supreme wisdom. He, he knew how to touch Nathaniel's heart. He knew how to draw him to himself. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man, which is... Jacob's dream. When Jacob was dreaming, he saw a ladder to heaven and angels going up and down. And he woke up from the dream and he goes, God was here. I'm going to call this place the house of God, Bethel. And he says, hey, listen, true Israelite in whom there is no heel grabber. The best of Jacob, that's what you're going to see. The best that Jacob ever got to see. That's what you're going to see in me. It's a la- you're going to see heaven opened. And the angels ascending and descending on me. In other words, those things that your heart longs for. To see heaven and earth united. For the presence of God to be amongst his people. He said, if you stick with me, you're going to see those things. And you're going to, the hope of, of true Israel is going to be realized right before your eyes. Nathaniel. So that's day five. Day six, we don't know what happens. Apparently, they travel to Cana. It was a travel day. So road trip day six. Then it says on the third day, and the way you count this is, so day five, day, that's, day, that's day six, day seven. 
on the third day. That's, by the way, why Jesus was raised not on a Tuesday, but on a Sunday or however that works out. Does that make sense? On the third day, it wasn't three days after this. It was today, tomorrow, third day. All right. On the third day, and so that, that makes it the seventh day of this week, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And so we end up day seven in Cana at Galilee at this, at Galilee at this wedding, and we're going to pick up there next week and talk about the seven signs. All right? But it's, it's just beautiful the way John does this, is he dovetails the last day of this opening week to the first of these seven signs that kind of structure the, the next segment of the book. Okay, so day seven and sign number one are sort of the same story, and they're interlinked there. So we'll talk about the actual sign, the actual miracle at Cana, as one of the signs uh, next week. Um, so what, what do we take away from this, this week? There's, some, there's, there's a lot here, and I encourage you to go back and kind of slowly meditate through this. And you'll just see things. I, I, I've read this I don't know how many times. And this week, I saw things. I'm like, I have never seen that before. John is just, there's no bottom to, to, to this well here. But I think we can say that the emphasis here in John's gospel is on individual encounter with Jesus. Personal encounter with Jesus. Not as the only thing that there is, but as the gateway, as he says, hey, you saw me, you saw me know you, and you believed because I was able to look into your heart and know you. But it doesn't just stay there. You're going to see greater things, right? So individual encounter with Jesus, he touches us in all different ways. And we see four pictures here of very different encounters but with the same result, they believe with all that is in them. And then they go and they live from that place of belief. So the emphasis is on individual encounter, but individual encounter that leads one into this totally new world. This totally new way of seeing reality with Jesus at the center, with the word made flesh as the governing principle of this whole world. And so you see things totally differently. That's why John talks a lot about the light versus the darkness. You go out of darkness when you encounter Jesus into light. And it means something deep to you personally, but then you see the whole world in a new way. All right? So the emphasis is on a personal, individual encounter with Jesus. And there's three, there's, there's three big words here. Come. Come. All right, this is, you know, the, that delegation from the Pharisees, they didn't come. They were sent. Right? They were compelled and given a task and given a list of questions to demand answers to from John about who he was and what all this business was about. They did not approach him openly. They did not approach him willingly in the way that the disciples did, in the way that John did. We see others who approached John, these Pharisees, that they did so with ulterior motives. All right, they were sent. They needed to give an answer to those who sent them. That was what frustrated them. Give us an answer. We got someone to report to. 
This is obligation. This is not coming to Jesus. And so the question here that we can ask ourselves, is there something other than a desire to know God that drives our relationship with him, that drives our pursuit of him? Are we trying to appease a selfish motive? Are we trying to placate a fear? Are we trying to justify ourselves in some way? Do we come and force our own preconceived notions and expectations on Jesus? This is not coming to Jesus. If we, if we approach in this way, we remain in darkness. There are a lot of people who approach Jesus through the Gospel of John, and they're not coming to Jesus. They are accosting Jesus. They are demanding of Jesus. They are trying to trap Jesus. All right, when, when he says, come and see, this coming is an open approach and the perfect, <laughs> the perfect example of this is those two disciples. What are you seeking? Can, can we just come with you? What are you seeking? Just, just to come. Okay. Come. This is, how, this is when we approach openly. And this is, this is an act of our will that we have to do. Come. And you'll see that word all through John. He says, those who come to me, I won't cast out. But then it's come and see. Come openly, and then as we do that, then we see. This is recognized. This is knowing in that, like, capital K way. This is, I didn't know him, but now I know him. This is what Nathaniel, when, he's, when Jesus says to him, before Philip called you and you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And Nathaniel says, how do you know me? Not how do you know about me or how do you recognize me? It's how do you know me in my core? And this is not something, so we come and we, it's, it's when our will is set to approach Jesus and when we are open and humble. Right? When we say, when we humble ourselves, like John, we say, we're not even worthy to untie your sandal. Out of that, we are led into seeing. But it's only in that, it's only in that humility that we begin to see. And we can't see of our own will. Seeing has to be aided by the Holy Spirit. Seeing has to be aided by the true light, which enlightens everyone. Okay, we come of our own will, but we cannot see without the help of God. Okay, but in order to see, we have to approach him. And so an openness and a humility in coming to Jesus will then enable us to see him for who he is. Or else we remain in darkness and we hate the light. Right, it says those who... Those who do evil, they don't come into the light because they, they don't want their deeds to be found out. There's a pride there. But when we come to when we come into the light, then we can see. 
And then out of coming and seeing, it, it, it culminates in believing. We come and we see and we believe. And this is a full entrusting of our existence and our identity to God through Jesus. They all, it doesn't say that they believed in this whole thing, except when Jesus tells Nathaniel, oh, so that's what made you believe? We don't see that word in here, but we see, we see the fruit of belief. We see it in, each, in different ways, right? We see John saying, I saw the Spirit on it, and so I am telling you, this is the one. That's believing. We see Andrew somehow become convinced in his lingering with Jesus that day from the 10th hour. We see him believing to the extent that he goes and he grabs his brother and says, you got to see this guy. That's believing. That's the fruit of belief. We see Philip. Or we see Peter. We don't even hear anything from Peter. We just see him have his identity changed in the presence of Jesus. And then we see Nathaniel obviously say, whoa, you know me. I believe you. So belief spills over into sharing with others, testifying, witnesses, right? You can't witness, you can't testify if you never witnessed something, right? You're of no good on the, on the witness stand if you actually didn't see something. Otherwise, it's hearsay, and it's, it's not admissible evidence. But if you really saw something happen, then you have a testimony to give. So we come, we see, and we believe, and then we can go and we can witness and testify, But the part that I really love is, is how Jesus responds to those who approach him in this way. Right? When we set our hearts to come and to see, Jesus, it says, sees us coming. Jesus sees us coming. It says the two disciples heard him say this and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following. Right? When we, when we pursue, Jesus, Jesus notices our pursuit. And he will come and he will meet us then. And that's when the encounter happens. That's when sight, sight happens. And that's, that's what gives way. That's what leads into real belief. Philip said to him, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no deceit. And he says, Before Philip even called you, I saw you. I saw your heart. So we come and we see, and the intimacy of our individual encounter with Jesus then gives way to greater things. We see him see us, but then we see in him, then we begin to see the angels ascending and descending. We see him as the son of man. We see him as the king of Israel. All these things that he has called in this chapter. We see him as the lamb of God. We see him, but first we see him as this guy that sees us. How did you, how did you know me? We start out believing because he sees us and touches our heart in a deep and profound way, in a way that no one ever could. That's how we begin, but then we finish 
by seeing heaven opened. And, and our eyes are enlightened. And we see Jesus at the center of all reality. And he is the point at which heaven and earth have commerce. And we see him as uniting heaven and earth. And this was, that's why we, that's why we see in Jesus the, the, the whole summary of creation. We see him as the point at which all things are summed up. This is what Paul said, tries to describe so many times in his letters. Jesus is the one in whom all things are united. He is all and in all. Paul can say that because Jesus came to him and touched him in a personal, intimate way, turned his heart. And Paul was blind, but then his eyes were open. Right? This is what happens. We come and we see, and out of that we then believe, and our entire world gets turned upside down. So it's an awesome first week. I think it's maybe the third best week in all of human history. You can make an argument for that. The first one has to be like creation or else we're not here. And I think the second has to be, which we'll go through another seven days that John records and that's Holy Week. And we'll see, when we get there, we'll see how John sets his weeks up in parallel to each other. It's the only time that he really talks about time stamps in his gospel. Otherwise, it's sort of an anthology. But here in this first week and here in the last week, he talks about what happens each day. So we'll line those up uh, when we get there. And that's a cool, it's a cool thing to study. Um, by the way, this first week ends with my time has not yet come. That's what he says to his mother when she says, hey, do something. He goes, my hour isn't come yet. The last week begins with Jesus saying, the hour has come. It's time. Right? In between there, we get these signs that indicate to Israel, this is the one. All right? So it's an awesome first, it's an awesome opening. Uh, and a way for John to move us from this kind of cosmic reality. The word became flesh. In the beginning. You know, these huge ideas. And we see these these first encounters with his disciples and the way that their hearts are opened and they, they find their way into true belief. And then we're off and running in the kind of the heart of the first part of the book. Amen? Come and see and out of that uh, believe. Um, all right, so we're going to come to the table. We're going to come and see and partake of the body and blood of our Lord. Uh, What a great way to respond um, to this beautiful first chapter.